0: One recurring question we've been grappling with on dry powder is when the private equity industry will finally get back to deal-making at scale. Many of the clients I've talked to have done maybe one deal in the past year. Most haven't sold any businesses at all, but my guest on today's show is a remarkable outlier.
1: Since what I'll call the downturn in November of 2021, we've completed or signed 18 monetization events.
0: That's Robert Smith, Chairman and CEO of Vista Equity Partners
1: not one but 18 and generated just under 18 billion dollars in total value including those monetizations of about 14 and a half in cash and another 3.6 billion in some various rollover structures
0: today on dry powder i'll ask robert how vista is defying the down markets we'll also see how vista takes a unique approach to underwriting in which they estimate roi not only for their lps but for the customers who use their software products i'm Hugh macarthur chairman of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. Robert, welcome to Dry Powder. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Good to be here, Hugh. Thanks for inviting me. I need to start by asking you about the tech sector. There's been a lot going on in the media right now, a lot of concern about the tech sector. And the first question I have for you is, has the music kind of finally stopped on this ride, or are we going to continue the big run in tech being a huge part of the private equity industry?
1: Yeah, it's a great, great question. The fact of the matter is, you know, tech as a a broad sector is going to continue to drive a massive amount of innovation and improvements across, you know, multiple parts of the global economy. Despite what I'll call some of the choppiness in the financial markets over the last year or so, we continue to expect enterprise software to remain a fairly fast-growing sector. Well, I look at our overall portfolio. If you add all of our companies up, we're maybe fourth or fifth largest enterprise software company. And while the growth rates have dampened from where they were two years ago, uh, we're still seeing kind of mid-teens growth. We're seeing a rapid consumption still of enterprise software, and a lot of that's really driven by just the productivity nature. And you know, one of the things we do here is we we measure the ROI of the products that our companies sell to their customers, and we do that annually, plus or minus three months as a matter of timing what we have going on. But the average ROI of the products that we sell to our customers is about 640%. There's just very few investments of any type that have that type of ROI. And from our perspective, we have now over, I think it's 450 million users of our software globally. We operate in 180 markets. So I will argue it's a pretty statistically significant uh, measurement. And what you see is there's just still a massive consumption because enterprise software continues to be the enabler for almost every industry, you know, it underpins all the core banking systems in the world. It enables all the digital sales and e commerce. It supports logistics and supply chain management and segments like healthcare. A lot of that's driven by software. And so, as we have distributed more computing capacity globally, we're going to need software to leverage that capacity. And when you and I started in this business way back when, computing capacity was held by large corporations, large universities, specific governments, et cetera. Now that pretty much anyone has access to it for $19.99 a month, you have the ability to solve specific business problems at scale almost immediately. And as we develop tools to make code development more efficient, I think you're going to continue to see an acceleration in this space more than, than any other. And you know, the fact is the enterprise software segment, the, the business model, I still is, believe is the most attractive at the end of the day. It's a 95% gross margin business. You build it once, you sell it as many times as you as you can. It's no inventory. You, you, you don't use it up. You have negative working capital and you have no CapEx now that we have this OPEX model for access to compute. So it still lends itself to a a, a very interesting, I call it a substrate for innovation. And as we get more people developers and others looking to bring innovative solutions into the market, then we're going to see really continued consumption of enterprise software. The good news on one side is the public markets continue to hammer some of the enterprise software companies. And I say good news because that creates a great opportunity for folks like us to to make investments in this dampened valuation environment than where it was a couple of years ago. So quite excited about uh, how the market is setting up for us today quite a powerful argument for enterprise
0: software in general in terms of where it's been and also where it's going as an attractive area. And as you know better than anyone, Robert, there are many, many different types of segments inside of the software space and subsegments. And one of the things that topically we've been worried about collectively as an industry is margins. And and margins—they're there in some spots in, in the software business. They're not there in other spots. And is it possible for all these businesses to really grow profitably, not just grow? What margins do you expect to see in the enterprise software space?
1: That's that's a great question. You and, and it's really a function uh, often on the private equity side of the the house of who are the actual purveyors uh, of the strategies behind how they're going to run those companies, and on the public side. To what extent the public investors are are issuing demands of the managers of those businesses demand for them to become more profitable you know the the short answer is while there was a, a tremendous amount of i call it capital and ambition flowing into the markets for quite some time during the monetary expansion people were kind of going after growth at all costs and now that we are in a tightening mode monetary tightening you have to really look at okay who actually knows how to run these businesses profitably and still manage and maintain growth i will argue that very few do it well sustainably some are kind of stock pickers in our space they go and they oh this is a good management team i'll pay whatever multiple and hope that they'll grow through it but you actually have to be able to do it where you're not breaking the business and the way i like to characterize it to accelerate the corporate maturity Um, It's not just as simple as cutting costs. It is actually building sustainable infrastructure in the core pillars of the business, which might be, and again, product development, the way that you actually go to market strategies, things like how do you manage your contract administration processes? How do you manage your human resources and human capital? Do you utilize centers of excellence? Do you go to places where you can get high quality talent at lower cost, but still maintain high KPI productivity? All of those are develop muscle. And those who do that well are able to accelerate the growth of companies and a- accelerate the profitability at the same time. You know, By giving you an example, you know, we had a company, Cvent, we sold to, to Blackstone a few months ago. And here's a business that 95% of their revenue came from in-person events. Well, guess what? During COVID, there were no in-person events, but we had built an infrastructure with the management team there for four or five years. We owned it before then. So we had high levels of recurring revenues, long-term maintenance contracts, long-term subscription contracts, et cetera. So even though events went to zero, we, we only had a dampening of the revenue in that business by about 10 11%, which is amazing if you think about it when all of your, your, your live events go to zero during that time. Well, beyond that, we also worked with the management team as COVID kind of became full-blown and within five months, we launched a virtual event solution. So that's bringing our value creation team with their developers together and said, let's build a virtual system, which we did. And then three months after had over $60 million in bookings in this virtual system. That's now over $150 million bookings. And in, in, in that system that from a start, again, there was there was no product. And now it's, you know, this company with the live events and virtual and hybrid events is now just done a spectacular job in in navigating. but If you haven't actually built the infrastructure in the business to do things like contracting and, you know, the the way that you build products and and deliver products in efficient manner uh, and and have built that infrastructure, it's going to be hard to pivot. And so I think we're going to see in the near term here a number of companies, private and public, uh, who are trying to pivot from a high growth model to a profitability model stumble you actually have to build infrastructure in, in a certain way so that those companies can continue to grow profitably. And, and then as you see, you know more demand for certain of the products, which you will see if you introduce you know, Gen AI products efficiently, how do you now scale the go-to-market, the support infrastructure of those businesses if you haven't built those fundamental underpinnings of that business? So, that's really how we think about approaching the market and ensuring that fundamental underpinnings ultimately give you the ability to scale and to pivot in some cases from higher growth to more profitable but still not necessarily break the business there's an art to it and you know the good news we've now have 23 years of managing that process and have been fairly successful at it
0: it's a really good argument robert and i really like the point you made around building the right infrastructure and sustainability in order to actually make sure that the company can carry through and can thrive and take advantage growth opportunities and do so at a profit. Sticking with the the profitability angle, you said something fascinating a little earlier about customer economics. You said something along the lines of, you actually measure customer economics of your companies and the ROI is something like 640%, if I heard you right. Is that where you start? And I was thinking about how do you identify companies in the first place and underwrite that they can profitably grow? And I think it's fascinating to start with their customers and what they benefit from and how much they benefit from actually signing up to be a customer. Is that where it begins?
1: It, it begins there. You know, our underwriting, one of the most important things, you know, this you being in this industry for you know 20 plus years, is you have to buy well <laughs> first. Okay. So that's one of the things. So you know, we saw the last couple of years, people just lose complete price discipline in the marketplace. And we do a measurement of, you know, what's kind of the growth adjusted revenue multiple of these businesses. And many of them were double and triple what they were over a historical basis. And, you know, you look at these companies and some of them were profitable. I'm, I'm, you know, flabbergasted that people pay that much for these businesses. But, you know, part of it, when we do our work, one of the first things we do to that point is what is the actual value of the products we are selling to our customers? Okay. So if I'm selling this product to a bank, what's the return that they get on it? You know, how much more efficient are they going to be in processing whatever it might be that they're processing? You know, if it's managing a policy, if it's managing an underwriting, whatever it might be, and what's the actual value that they get? And then how do you characterize that value and how do you capture what I call your fair share of it? That's the first thing we do when we're evaluating. And if you're saying, well, gee, this actually isn't so productive for your customer. Then why would they continue to buy it? So you've got to come down to some very basic economics. What is the benefit of them buying this product uh, as kind of the, you know, the, the basis? Then from that, you can roll up into your normal, call it TAM or you know, what's your total addressable market? How do you ass- assess that addressable market given the products that you're selling relative to the competitive set to, to the extent they are selling those, those sorts of products? And then do you have an efficient motion? go-to-market sales motion? Do you have an efficient value capture motion in your contract? And do you have an efficient motion in your product development so that you can create sustainable, long-term relationships with these customers, what we characterize in the form of ARR, right? So, you know, the annual recurring revenues. And, and so those are the things that we look at to understand, is this a business we want to invest in? Then from there, you can now start to talk about valuation, okay? What is the value of this revenue stream that you have today in your ARRs and have the potential to capture in your projections? And to what extent can you capture that You know, using your organic methods of expanding your sales force or expanding your pricing or expanding your product or your penetration into the existing customer base? And that forms the basis of our underwriting. And the way I like to characterize it, what we underwrite to is critical factors for success being under our control, not the critical factors for success being some projection of some market growing or some adoption rate that a wonderfully smart consultant has put together. But what are the things that we can actually control with the relationships with the customers that we have and an understanding of what this product is giving to the customers and the value to those customers? And are we capturing our fair share? And then how can we capture more of our fair share? So, you know, from there, then you can think about what is the price discipline that one needs to exercise in investing in those businesses And then from there, what are the activities that we're now going to deploy with the management team to now capture more of the economic rent that this product is actually providing to the customer segment that we're calling upon? That's how we think about it, and that's how we really evaluate our underwriting. And that's why we maintain a very strict price discipline, because we have a good sense for the value of what these products can offer.
0: That makes a lot of sense, Robert. So you start with the value, start with the economics of value, then worry about how big is the market, then worry about how fast it might grow and think through the controllable levers you have to both be efficient and also manage risk during the course of the investment.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And part of that is also, okay, how are you thinking about it? We have a group, our value creation team that works with our underwriting team in the underwriting as well as with the management team all afterwards to say, okay. How are we going to make these businesses more capital efficient? How are we going to ensure that they become more effective in the delivery of their promise to their customers? In some cases, it's you know establishing a center of excellence where we can actually lower the cost of the product delivery to our companies, or enhance or accelerate the rate of that we're going to deliver new products to the customer base, and also in in many cases, you know, put an in infrastructure in place. To scale this, I call it these go-to-market best practices, right? Which includes how do we think about territory management? How do we think about pricing? How do we think about compensation, you know, for our salespeople? How do we incentivize them to create more long-term relationships with customers because they become much more highly profitable? And so you can actually sell products and existing customers, accelerate growth and accelerate profitability at the same time. But you have to put the, you know, I'll call it the underpinnings and the mechanisms in place in order to do that. And that originally is driven by what is the ROI of the product and how are we actually getting that product sold into that customer segment and ensuring that we buy at the right level so that we can capture that value. And that value isn't just kind of going back to paying back, what you know, overpaying for the company. So that that's how right. about that across our, our portfolio.
0: Right. That uh, makes a lot of sense. Now, Robert, you said something earlier, a couple of things actually that have piqued my curiosity. One is that multiples have, have come down a little bit in the in the public markets as a result of concerns about profitability and growth in, in some areas of tech. You also mentioned that you had an exit uh, this year uh, of an investment, which is uh, big news <laughs> in the tech side of the industry because that's not happening too much. I uh, put some data together last week, and the average hold period right now in the private equity world, the buyout world, is 5.6 years, which is an all-time high. And I happened to put out just a quick LinkedIn blog post about that last week, and it got 100,000 reads. So clearly, people <laughs> are anxious about exits in the marketplace. Right. What are you doing to find opportunities to actually exit and put some money back in those LP pockets that they're so concerned
1: about? Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, we, we've actually, since what I'll call the downturn in November of 2021, we've completed or signed 18. Monetization events. So 18, not one, but 18, and generated uh, just under 18 billion dollars in total value, including those monetizations of about 14 and a half, I think, in cash and another 3.6 billion in some various rollover structures. And the you know, you biggest one I think recently was Aptio. We sold IBM for 4.6 billion. I think I mentioned C to to the Black Sun, which is also 4.6 billion. But the reason I, I raise all that is because what buyers are interested in in any market are solid companies that can deliver to them the sorts of returns that they are underwriting to. And if you are building companies that have, I call it the solid underpinnings, you know, this accelerating the corporate maturity, you, you know, you've matured the pillars of of growth, profitability, and sustainability. These companies become attractive to public markets, private markets, you know, strategic markets. Because they realize that that you built an engine that they can rely on, and that they can now continue to leverage their strengths. In the case of IBM, you know, Salesforce infrastructure companies like Aptio they're saying, "Listen, we can double and triple in many cases." You know, the the value capture from their customer base from a very unique set of solutions that Aptio offers, and you know, you, you, you then also embed some Gen AI capacity. Which we've done in that business, and you're actually to able to then, from an IBM perspective, extract more than call it the 4.6 billion that they they paid us and paid themselves and their shareholders and enhanced economic return. So that's how we think about you know just build fundamental companies, and irrespective of the market, you'll have the ability to capture value. You know, during 2020, 2021, market was screaming. We took six companies public. As a market dampened, guess what? We were able to monetize 18 companies. Because strategic buyers and financial buyers all looked and said, you know, these are actually very attractive businesses that you all have built. They have, you know, when they do their diligence, they see, you know, we haven't just kind of glossed over what, you know, the important elements of of maturing these corporate, the corporate infrastructure. And so these businesses now have sustainable capacity, which is what buyers really want.
0: It's such an amazing story. 18 companies and about $15 billion in cash in this environment is very unusual. We talked to a lot of GPs and that's, that's a truly, truly impressive performance. And Robert, this is the second time I've heard you refer to, if I can use the term, customer economics. You were just talking about the buyer's economics and understand that the numbers have to work for the buyer of an asset if you are going to sell. And in this environment where we've seen interest rates spike up so highly, it's made it difficult to finance with the same quantum of debt that we've used in the past. And what we always think about it is, well, the way you actually get around that is that EBITDA growth is very strong. And if EBITDA growth is strong during your holding period, then what someone else might be underwriting is predicated upon that continued growth. But it eases the pressure of having to put so much debt as a buyer onto an asset. Do you think about it that way, or is there some other way you think about the buyer economics here?
1: No, I think it, it's that. And it's it's also demonstrating to the buyer what is inherent in the business that we built that hasn't been fully realized in the financial metrics of the company. You know, We'll look at our companies and they'll say, okay, well, here's the customer base. And oh, by the way, only 20% of the existing products have actually been sold into the existing customer base. And here's the ROI of those additional products. And so if you use your terrific sales force right, to expand the sale of this products into your customer base, here's the economic benefit you get from a product that's already built, proven, and used into a customer that you already have. And now it's just a function of how long it takes to, to, to now go capture it. So we like to show the fundamental economics of additionally expanding what we call the white space in the existing customer base to, to the buyer set. So that's kind of point one. The, you know, what, what we'll call this their source of capital, you know, they've got to figure out what's the most efficient way to manage it. And as you know, the large syndicated bank market is somewhat troubled right now. And so, of course, the direct lenders have now kind of moved into that space. And they actually see the value of how we built our businesses, the high retention rates, high recurring revenues. And so you'll see that group of lenders actually give us a little more credit than others because now they've had years of experience with us. And showing how we've been able to over time deliver the value creation in our businesses.
0: Now you talked about banks and credit, Robert, and and banks obviously they're very jittery. They've pulled back a lot when you when you're levered at twelve to one or whatever it happens to be lending money at uh, at rates this high can be challenging in, into uh, an environment that they perceive as risky. Private credit doesn't have that kind of leverage. It's more like one to one or something like that. And you of course are in the private credit business. Do you think this is a good time for private credit?
1: Yeah, it is. It's actually a really good time for us in private credit. Um, two things. I mean, again, first the syndicated bank market is kind of all but inaccessible for the time being. We'll we'll see how that ultimately frees up. And direct lenders are now understanding they have a lot more power and they're and they're flexing it. You know, and of course, folks are coming back to do refinancings and you know, amended and extends and all that. And so you're seeing that flex in the marketplace uh we of course have our own private credit business and it's pretty interesting private credit here for years has demonstrated durability uh over multiple cycles and in fact if you actually look at the the numbers you know the default rates are much lower than the high yield bonds and frankly they have a higher recovery rate in terms of how they've been structured you know what we have found in the world of enterprise software which where we focus is More and more management teams, more and more sponsors are looking for reliable capital partners who can provide some scale. And so what we've done, I think, pretty efficiently is actually tapped into our broader ecosystem because we've got Flagship Foundation, Endeavor Perennial in our private equity business, you know, in a selectivity of call it three or four percent on the private equity side. There's just a massive number of deals that we just don't do that, you know, we can now feed to our credit business. Many of them are what we call founder led. And so we created a whole business and called founder direct. You know, you have a lot of enterprise software companies out there that are still founder led. Right. Uh, those founder-led companies need capital. And often, you know, if they have VCs and VCs right now, a lot of them are risk-off or or they're moving to Gen AI, and the growth equity folks are somewhat hobbled because a lot of them put their capital work at the high end of the market and trying to work their way through. But some of them are fundamentally good companies. They need capital. And we're able to go with our founder direct strategy and do first lien, senior secured, less than 20% loan-to-value and underwrite them because what we do is underwrite software and we've done, I think now over 24 transactions, over one and a half billion dollars in that space alone in the last 18 months. Uh, we also continue to focus on, you know, the sponsor credit business. We've also deployed about two and a half billion dollars and returned about one and a half billion in the last 18 months. So I'm really excited about what our private credit business is able to accomplish in this world of uh, of enterprise software.
0: Clearly, the ability to really bring your expertise in enterprise software to the credit markets is kind of a nice moat to have around that business so that you can grow it and understand the microeconomics of what buyers and sellers are really trying to underwrite.
1: Absolutely. We have a unique perspective, again, because of their size, scale, scope, capacity that informs a lot of our credit underwriting. And, And frankly, we've been building out that team quite dramatically over the last decade or so. and really excited about the prospects there.
0: On the next episode of Dry Powder, Robert and I will discuss the promise of AI and the founding vision that has kept Vista at the cutting edge of tech
1: deals. 85% of my VPs started as analysts or associates. Okay, so if you think about it, we grew them from the time they came out of college.
0: I'm Hugh MacArthur.
1: Thank you for listening.